Welcome, everybody, back to another episode of Colibrid Corner. I am your host, Owen McIntyre. With me, as always, is Mr. Riley Jimison. Colibrid Corner is the show where we dive into certain species under the Colibrid nomenclature, I guess is what we kind of talk at taxonomy, <laughs> whatever. Um, that includes a lot of snakes, so we're going to kind of jump into snakes that you may not have heard of. So, Riley... Yes. What are we talking about today? Well, today we are going to discuss Dasipelta scabra, or the rhombic egg eater, also known as the common egg eater, or Gevona aervreter. <laughs> Why is it never normal? All right. Um, so... All right, so now I've seen egg-eating snakes at shows and stuff like that, but they've always been the brown mm-hmm. egg-eater, I think. I don't think I've ever seen common egg-eater. So so I do want to get into that one. So when did we discover this thing? So this was another 1758 Linnaeus discovery. Um, these guys being South African, I think there was a bunch of species that were sort of all described in, from one big trip uh, that Linnaeus made. And then uh, he he put them in Kaluber Skaber. He put a lot of things that he found on that. Kaluber Skaber. Yeah. So it's, such a fun, <laughs> it's such a fun way. Uh, okay. Like a good name. And then uh, in 1829, they were changed to Anodon Typus by one A. Smith. And then some cheeky guy named Owen in 1845 changed, I wasn't alive. It, <laughs> changed it to Deridon Skaber. And then uh, that Dumeril, Bibron, and Dumeril group of folks in 1954, they didn't like that somebody else beat them to it. So they changed it again to Rachiodon Scaber. We had these guys with the um, Rhombics, the Rhombic, whatever the hell it was called. Yeah, the uh, Scap Steaker. Scap Steaker, yeah, the Sheep Stabber. Yeah, Yeah, they (laughs) they were involved in some reclassification there as well. Why? All right. Uh, and, then, and then four years after that, somebody was like, nah, you guys are just wrong and brought it back into uh, a different genus, uh, Dasipeltus scabra. So the, the scaber and scabra sort of stayed throughout. I, th- I think, you know, other than uh, the first change to Anodon typus, but yeah. um, I think it has a lot to do with you know, some of the, the same features they were seeing, nobody could just agree on, you know, where <laughs> it belonged. So, okay. All right. So these guys are, are really, really cool. Paint the visual picture for the listener. All right. Grabbing my brush. So this animal is a, a pretty small snake. They mm-hmm. can get just over a meter in length. So we're talking a little over three feet, but typically, more, more like 60 centimeters. So like, you know, two feet, pretty small. Yeah, um, yeah, that. okay. they, uh, they're a, a light tan with nice, beautiful brown markings reminiscent of like a clean gopher snake or a bull snake where it's like dorsally yeah. washed and banded. They right. have a, a body composition that's almost like, uh, it's almost vertical and compressed, kind of like a boa constrictor, but instead of a loaf of bread, it's more like the, the shape of an A with a rounded top, but very similar. Okay. So they, they tend to be a little more lateral, laterally compressed. And uh, and Owen, your favorite, they are they are keel-scaled snakes. 
Oh yes, if it's bumpy, I love it. <laughs> yeah. So these guys really, they really have that in spades. It looks like it goes all the way down to their flanks, uh, all the way up to their necks, and I imagine when they, you know, open their mouth and show, you know, their black uh, inside of their mouth and puff up their neck, it probably yeah, it's cool. is a crazy cool color, and they separate those better. field scales, <laughs> and the the skin underneath their scales is orange, so you have this like brown and tan with orange just kind of peeking through underneath and some little bits, little bits of white with these beautiful copper eyes. It's uh, a really cool, it's a beautiful looking snake. And, and, and when it gives you attitude and shows you it's jet black mouth, it's pretty impressive. Um, even just for a little guy. So they, uh, they have these, these bands that start on like the nose and go across the head and sort of bend and gradually turn into a V shape right behind the head. And then that changes into the, uh, the dorsal blotches and the cross banding that goes the whole body. So it's a really beautiful looking snake. What does that, what does that say about me that I want snakes that have armored scales and I hate the scale of snakes. Like I just, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's maybe something about your vulnerability. Uh, let's not get into that. Okay. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> it's but, a different podcast, buddy. Yeah, All right. Yeah, so, sorry. Sorry. Uh, um, back on track. Red list. Where so are we sitting with these, guys? these guys have had some some work done, and fortunately for them, they are oh, nice. species of least concern. Oh, nice. Okay. They their last assessment was June thirtieth, so it was a little while ago. That was or June thirtieth of two thousand nine. So it was a little while like ago. A while ago. Yeah, yeah. it was a while ago. <laughs> but um, they are considered like one of the most common and widespread species in okay. South Africa. Like they're probably all over the place. Um, so I, it doesn't seem like there's uh, too much concern about them. And, okay. and being in South Africa, uh, there's a lot of study and protection going on for some of the areas down there. So I'm sure that, you know, any any wildlife protection that goes into the conservation of that area will sort of incidentally envelop a lot of those species. So, Okay. So these concerns, so... Have they spread outside of South Africa or is it like outside the country as well? Or is it the region of South Africa? Um, they have spread out of South Africa. It looks like they kind of go a little bit further north okay. um, and they'll hit sub-Saharan Africa. And and then there's like a gap where they're also found in parts of the Middle East near where the saw-scaled viper is. So Really? Jeez. Yeah. So somehow a population of them migrated up and, and then there's just like a gap in the middle where they're, they're not prevalent not and, yeah. and there's just a North and a South sort of group. Um, as far as I can tell, they're the same species and considered the same and, you know, inhabit similar, uh, similar habitats and niches. What are those, what are their normal habitats? So they like uh, grasslands and and thornveld, which is kind of like uh, like the spiky shrubs and mm -hmm. stuff, which yeah. is really common to a lot of the the arid parts of, of Africa. A lot of their their ungulate and hoofstock species feed on those those grasses and bushes and whatnot. So um, they live in a lot of those areas, but they can also be found in uh, some montane grasslands. So you know if they're you know, traversing between this northern and southern population, then they can, you know, deal with that. There's there's a lot of different environments that come across. So montane grasslands aren't out of the question, moist savannas, uh, coastal forests, succulent karoo, and finbos. So they they're pretty tough snakes. It seems like they're kind of yeah. like the uh the gopher snakes of of most of Africa. 
Yeah, that's so cool. All right. Um, night, night Hunters? Yeah, so here's where they've got it dialed in. Okay. Being egg eaters, they're they're going to be got to get the eggs. Yeah, yeah. Gotta <laughs> get the eggs. So they're going to be raiding nests or excavating nests and doing these things. And when these guys eat an egg, they they grab the whole egg. They have to work their jaws around it. They've got to mm-hmm. get it down. It's huge. It's bigger than their head. It takes some time. It hits some specific bones in their vertebrae that break and crush the the shell allowing the the fluids to then be uh, swallowed while the shell kind of stays there and the body compresses that out. And so they spit that eggshell out. And that's how they, they hunt for particularly birds' eggs. And so they have to do that at night because that whole process takes some time, leaves them completely mm-hmm. vulnerable to attack. And we already know that birds are uh, very diurnal for the most part based on their vision. So if you can find uh, a nest and, you know, scare the the mom off in the middle of the night she takes off because she has no idea what's going on you just woke her up and you eat the babies you eat the egg you know that's probably the best strategy for these guys so um they are most certainly nocturnal and at best crepuscular you know kind of in those early dawn or early morning late dawn as as things are still waking up or just going to bed they might take advantage of of you know some uh some animals that have their guard down but it seems to be primarily uh bird eggs they're going after and i mean they could probably they would they would probably put away an entire nest of eggs just because they know when they're going to find another one exactly also birds aren't nesting all freaking year so this is a very limited food source for these guys Mm -hmm. yeah and i would imagine they they have to they have to limit themselves to certain species because being a rather small snake, they're not going to eat all bird eggs. You know, some of the bigger birds get out of here, but you know, smaller ones, they're going to have to put in some work. Yeah. They're probably going to to have to feast and then, you know, deal with famine shortly after. So why not just eat the, cause I, I, I fed eggs to my Kribo and so have you. Mm-hmm. Um, and they don't regurgitate the shell. Right. Just, eat the whole egg and let it go. So why, why not just swallow the egg? Why the regurgitation? That's a good question. Uh, I, you know, I really don't know. The only thing I could think of would be, uh, you know, maybe where they're at because it, it's a little bit cooler in those montane areas, or maybe they like these little microclimates where it's cooler. It's harder for them to digest that hard calcium material, or maybe they like to to not be burdened down with a belly full of stuff as opposed to just some egg and yolk. Well, I don't know. I mean, I also I I fed my Kribo the quail eggs and they swallow those eggs whole. Yeah. Um, and I've had them like poop out whole eggs that did not I guess dissolve in their stomach or do anything like that. Like mm. the shells were intact. So mm. maybe you run the risk of not even getting the nutrients without cracking the egg. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean that that does make sense. The only way to get into the yolk is to get through the shell, and if they're yeah. not if they're not crushing the shell or they're swallowing it whole, and there isn't that that uh, vertebrae thing in there to to sort of break it open, yeah, then they're definitely not getting anywhere. Okay. So, um, I mean, what size eggs do you think this is going to be? Like quail size? 
So, yep, these guys are oviparous, and, and based on their size... Not once they were eating, like, you know, that's quail oh, eggs. Is but yeah, yeah, I would imagine, right. like, small birds, quail eggs. Nothing ever gets the size of, like, a chicken egg. Yeah, yeah. no, these guys are not big. Their heads are small. They don't have those big, wide jaws or anything like yeah. that. So, yeah, we're talking small bird eggs. Got it. All right, now reproductive. Now Go. reproductive. <laughs> so, these guys are oviparous. They tend to lay 6 to 25 eggs, which I would imagine <laughs> accounts for, you know, maybe some small young females being successful here and there. Um, and then big girls dropping 25 eggs. Christ. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, they uh they're pretty prolific and they incubate at uh around 87 to 90 days from what I've been able to find. Okay. Um, but no, nothing specific on temperatures. So again, you they, know, we're talking African, so maybe mid to high eighties. Well, I don't know. Like you know, I know a lot of animals will lay their eggs in like termite mounds in mm-hmm. uh, Africa because then it's somewhat regulated. But you're still talking eighty-seven something yeah. degrees. Yeah, yeah. They just seem so. to take a little bit longer uh, than, yeah. than python eggs. So yeah, but. Maybe that has something to do with the fact that their morphology is different, so it takes time to grow the more I don't know, you know keratin in the in the in the scales for the keeled scales and build right. those particular structures for that eggshell splitting mechanism for them to extract the juice. I I couldn't tell you, but that is it is quite a long incubation for colubrid. Yeah, that is that's that's takes a while, but who knows? So. As far as their lifespan, uh, I mean, corn snake, are we getting into the 20s, the 30s? Where are we at here? What I was reading was only 10 plus years. Um, okay. So, you know, anytime I hear that, that makes me wonder if we just don't know enough yet. And so far, we can consistently get animals to 10 plus. Well, now but... my thing would be, all right, so 10 plus, is that observed in captivity? I believe so, yeah, because these right. are in the hobby. All right, so 10 plus. Now, I, if I fed my carpet python every time I wanted to eat, I could get it to 10 plus and then it would drop dead because um, it'd be too fat, overfed, and everything like that. If these things are egg eaters that eat, that raid nests when birds are nesting and they have to be a certain size bird, they're not eating all the time. You, like I said, like you and I talked about, it could be feast and famine. It could put away four or five eggs mm-hmm. and then not eat again until couple months later when they're nesting again or when it finally gets comes across another nest right so part of me is thinking 10 plus years because the ones that are in the hobby might be being overfed because it's hey we've all seen the videos of egg eating snakes it's kind of cool to watch them eat yeah yeah and who knows if if people are trying to uh to get them to eat rodents by scenting them with eggs and that could certainly have implications on their lifespan or if it's yeah like you said just an egg a week for their whole life and it just burns them out you know you brought up a good point about the birds in their nesting season if where they're at um i would imagine there's probably various species of birds so you've probably got some that are there year-round and some that migrate so there's probably you know periods of abundance and periods of less abundance so i'd imagine during those periods they're going to eat opportunistically as much as possible because they know that there's a window of time where they won't get anything it's gone it's shut down yeah, yeah. so so that would be interesting to see um i don't know how that uh that would would work in the hobby if you you have to accommodate that with like a cooler period so they're running cooler or 
uh, a brumation or what, but um, they are in the hobby. So we, we could potentially, you know, see this as a, an animal that is cycle fed, but only eggs. Right. Yeah. That's but cool. that would be pretty neat. So, so and then getting yeah. into those keeled scales, anytime mm-hmm. we talk about animals with keeled scales, there's always some sort of a purpose, whether it's to mimic a rattlesnake or to have, you know, extra anchors, chelation, yeah. anchors, exactly. There's always a reason for it. So these guys, we we talked about how their the northern populations are found near where those saw scale vipers are. These guys will mimic saw scale vipers. Okay, so they will rub their bodies to mimic the saw scale viper sound. Yes. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, right. yeah, and there's video footage of it. I've seen it. It's actually really impressive. It's pretty cool. Um, if you did not know what a saw scale viper looked like, or you'd only seen a quick photo of it, it's a pretty convincing display. They do the yeah, whole. Don't touch it. Yeah. yeah, they do the whole gyrating, the flattening of the head. They move in that one position. And it's mm-hmm. just that constant hissing, and it's really convincing. Well, I mean, yeah, it was it? it. It just I just have to make you rethink touching me. That's all I got to do. So mm-hmm. yeah, and and you know, humans we like to we like to visually associate things. So for people, they see this snake that has these V shaped uh, markings on them. If they're not doing that saw scale position, they'll flatten their head. And they see this V-shaped, you know, these like chevrons on the neck and a vertical pupil on this thing. Some folks confuse them for night adders. So you you are living in this area where there's a lot of venomous animals. And, and one that acts like one, uh, all of them all at once. I right, know. right. And so it's advantageous for this snake to look as convincing as some of its counterpart venomous snakes in that area. Because I'm, I'm sure a lot of the local pre- uh, predators... You know, probably figured that one out too. So that's probably a survival advantage. Yeah, most likely. So that's super, super cool. That is very cool. I like that. Yeah. So them being in the hobby, um, are there are they bred in in the U.S. herpetoculture, or is it a lot of um, uh, imports from Africa? I think they are. Uh, bred in captivity somewhat mm. uh, infrequently, but enough to, to still be around here and there. I don't think they warrant so much interest because they're not eating, you know, laboratory grade white rodents. So, eggs, you, yeah. yeah, you obviously see how species like that tend to never, they never are like the most popular species because not well, everyone has access to that food. I mean, and think about it this way. Okay, so a while ago, quail eggs might have been hard to get, but you can go to Whole Foods and get a bunch of quail eggs. Right. But if you breed them, where the hell are you going to get finch eggs or yeah. small songbird eggs? Like, you'd have to raid nests of <laughs> of birds in your backyard. Yeah. And even then, you know, a blue jay egg might be too big for a baby egg right. eater. Or, yeah, or you, you go to your local pet store and now all of a sudden you have to be a zebra finch keeper. Uh, oh, my God. Round. Yeah, no. it's, it's a lot of work. So, you know, anytime we see these types of uh, particular feeding habits in reptiles, we see a lot of common things like uh, a lack of abundance in the hobby, very low price. Like these animals are 
you know, 60 to $160 on average. So, you know, probably a lot of what you see are imports or, you know, some people probably have a couple adults that breed for them here or there and they wholesale them. And that's when you see them. Um, Do you imagine if these things were big enough to eat like chicken eggs, like a whole large, that would be great. That would be great. They would be the most, the most popular snake in herpetoculture. Yeah, they really would because then you'd have the entire group of people who don't like feeding rodents You'd have just buy egg eaters, yeah, mm-hmm. and then just put one chicken egg in their cage, yeah, and every you can couple go to the, of weeks, yeah, and yeah. you go to the grocery store and you can get eighteen eggs for like three bucks, yeah. And I mean, it, it would be the the most affordable pet snake to feed, that's for sure. Oh my god, if only these things were bigger, yeah, <laughs> like, just... that, that would be pretty cool. It'd be like a, a rough scale that only eats eggs, eggs, yeah. Damn. Oh. Dang, that'd be so sweet. close, so close. Nature, you missed almost. So, yeah, but almost not there. as far as their care goes, if somebody is interested in pursuing finding some, sourcing some, and keeping some, and changing the status of them in the hobby, there are some general care tips out there, and they don't seem like a super difficult species to keep. In fact, I would probably argue these animals would do just fine at uh, regular python temperatures in a rack system based on what I've found as far as suggested thermal gradients with a 90 degree hot spot down to a 70 degree cool end being from Africa. It sounds a lot like our ball python friends. But say, yeah, you could just not just put them in a 32 quart bin. I think that'd be right up their money. Yeah, 40 to 60 percent humidity. You know, if you don't like racks, you could do like a 20 gallon, you know, tank or something like that. Um, they're not a burrowing species that they like to go through the trees and, and snatch up eggs at a nest. So, you know, give them a, a pretty, you know, basic enclosure. I would imagine something like two, three feet wide and two feet tall, throw some branches in there and, you know, hide a few little clusters of nests everywhere so you can do some enrichment feeding and place eggs at different places throughout the enclosure. And yeah. you'd have a pretty cool snake to keep. It's that that would be kind of cool to set it up with like a tree and then every once in a while you put a bunch, a couple eggs in yeah. the nest and have it like climb up the tree and take all the eggs out and yeah that would um, be super cool especially if you could find exactly what season it needs to be eating and then you have this like this 12 week period let's say where it's raiding nests all day every day yeah, and it's like, just trying I to imagine eat. that's what it's got to be like so if they're eating a certain type of bird and that bird is nesting between this month and this month mm-hmm. that thing has got to be climbing up trees eating three or four eggs a day yeah. Just trying to get as many as it can. Yeah. And then and then the spigot turns off where either the birds migrate away following the rain systems or they're, they're not breeding not anymore. Yeah. 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 And then it just has to go months without food until next year the birds turn, unless they like there cannot be that many small birds that are in this animal's wheelhouse in Africa that it could <laughs> go like these birds are nesting this month. Next month, these birds will be nesting, in which case, also, they're not going to all be in the same place. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we already know snakes, kind of as a general rule of thumb, are designed for feast and famine. And some some take it to the the utmost extreme limits, some of those island species or high elevation species, things like that. But, um, yeah, these, these guys, I would imagine, get several, you know, good months of feeding and then nothing. 
I would say it's almost like an island species that's not in an island because right. like I mean we talk about island species where they're like they need to eat the chicks of these birds. So that when the birds come to nest, they just kill and eat as many as they can right. until next year. Right. It's like this thing, it has to wait for those birds to have the eggs. Now, mm-hmm. like I said, there, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of little bird species in Africa, but I, I there cannot be it can't be that spread out. Like I almost feel like their breedings would kind of overlap. So yeah. maybe it's not taking out the same species of egg every day, but it's this is when the eggs are being laid. You know, right. no, no Africa. You said this is sub-Saharan. Yeah, and we already know a lot of Africa's wildlife hinges on the rainfall. Exactly. So yeah. birds aren't going to be nesting when it's the driest point of the freaking year. Why would it do that to itself? Yeah, they need food for their offspring. They need food to exactly. produce these eggs. So all of these animals follow these these clues from their environment, these cues as far as when the ideal time to reproduce is. Right. So these things have got to be just eating net in that raiding nest, eating eggs. The birds either have their babies and move on or move on because of the rain. Mm-hmm. These things then get to go hide in a termite mound until it's cool enough yeah. to get back out again. I would, yeah, I would imagine these guys eat big time in at the first spring rains. They probably eat a bunch and then through the summer and then they stop at like and- fall. And they might get lucky and some animal might lay eggs in a termite mound. But a lot of times those are going to be monitors where their eggs are going to be too big for you to eat. Yeah. And other stuff. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty. Like what, maybe, maybe a tortoise, like if a small tortoise egg, maybe. I think that I would be know. too big. Yeah. I don't know. These guys aren't big. Their heads are like, you know, yeah. the size of my thumb. So. Yeah. And like a sulcata egg is about the size of a ping pong and that's too big. And I yeah. don't think a leopard tortoise is that much smaller. Well, and those are also significantly more calcified shells. I mean, everything I that I'm reading on this, it. yeah, everything I'm reading on this, it's going after bird eggs. So, well, shit. All right, but they're in the hobby. They're cool. They have keeled scales. They act like saw scale vipers, and you probably only need to feed them six months out of the year. Uh, if anybody's out there listening, this is your call to arms. Go do something and be known as the uh, the the Pelta scabber guy. Yeah, but again, finch eggs. Do you really want to deal with finch eggs? Hey, people do it, man. People do it. If you live somewhere where you got a farmer nearby who just like, so for example, sparrow eggs all the time. Yeah. Well, my grandfather up in Chico used to have hundreds of finches in his backyard. I'm sure he isn't the only one. The one time I got close is my neighbor down the street when I used to live at my mom's, uh, she had zebra finches. Mm. And I had her for a while. I'm like, pull all the eggs and freeze them for me. And I got this close to getting egg eaters because I had a <laughs> I had a steady influx of zebra finches and Ooh. zebra finch eggs and all this stuff, and I was ready. Yeah. And then and then I moved and well, I couldn't find any egg eaters, so I didn't buy them. And then I moved and the spigot turned off because she got rid of all her finches. So dang, that's tempting. That would be such a fun species to experiment with. I don't know. I think I'd be pulling my hair out with babies because there have been numerous times I've had babies mm. and then pulled my hair out with them, you know, see rhino rat snakes. Oh, uh, boy. So, yeah. yeah. But actually, now I'm really curious what babies would eat. I don't know because, I mean, it, obviously, birds in Africa range from tiny little puffballs to ostrich. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's got to be 
one of a right size. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, I have an ostrich egg over there. Yeah. I don't think an egg eater, egg eater could live in an ostrich egg. Yeah. So I, hmm. I don't know, but there has to be some sort of small bird. Yeah. But even then, you know, if you're a tiny baby egg eater, certain moms might be like, Fuck you. And like, yeah, I could take you on. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Eat you. It's eat you. Or just like, yeah, you get fed to the babies. Like, wild. It's got to be a little dangerous. So mm, interesting. Very yeah. interesting. An interesting species. So, yeah. all right, Riley, throw out your stuff and we'll throw out the rest of the stuff for the show. And then we'll talk about what we're going to do on the next episode. All righty. So. We will see y'all next week. My name is Riley, and you can find me under uh, Riley's Reptiles on Instagram and all that social media stuff, or just Riley Jemison under YouTube, uh, Reptile Room Podcast as well. And that's it for me. Cool. Uh, Colleague Corner is a member of the Morelia Python Radio Network. Uh, please go over to Morelia Python Radio and uh, give them a subscribe. All the other podcasts that are on the Morelia Python Radio Network, Morelia Python Radio, uh, Carpet Cliff Notes, Collier Corner, and Student of the Serpent with more to come. Um, so definitely go give those all a like. Also, Collier Corner on Instagram. Give that a like. It's where we're going to post up show notes as well as pictures of the animals that we're discussing. Um, also, we'll put up uh, when new episodes drop there. Uh, also on MoreliaPythonRadio.com is where we're going to start posting up the Calibre Corner show notes, which will have all of Riley's research as well as every episode um, species that we cover just to get that information out there. Uh, also, beware, we're going to start getting stuff ready for the Teespring store over at the NPR uh, Teespring store for Calibre Corner and the other shows on the NPR network we're working all and all that stuff. If you have any questions or want to have a species or want to just have a want to put a species (laughs) forward to discuss on Colubri Corner, go ahead and shoot us a message over on the Instagram page. If it's not on our list already, we will add it to the list. There are a lot of stuff under Colubri. So, Riley, what are we talking about next week? Next time. Damn it. Next time, we will be talking about the Jackson's Tree Snake, also known as the Jackson's Bold-Eyed Tree Snake. Thraceops Jacksonii. Sweet. Yeah. All right. So that's the episode this time. We'll catch everybody next time. Thanks for listening. Bye. Later.